0: CHAPTER 50 OF HISTORY OF THE NORWEGIAN PEOPLE, VOLUME 1 BY KANUK JERSHET. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. OLAV KIERA, A PERIOD OF PEACE Olaf, Harold's son, spent the winter of 1066-1067 to 1067 in the Orkneys, and returned to Norway in the spring. His brother Magnus had been crowned king before the expedition left for England, but Olaf was also made king on his return. The Heimskringla says that they were made joint kings, but Magnus was to rule the northern and Olaf the southern half of the country. The loss of the great army sent to England was a severe blow, nothing less than a national calamity. The country's resources were badly drained, and the available stores and military forces were gone. Under these circumstances, King Sven of Denmark found the time opportune to put forward a claim to overlordship over Norway. Magnus and Olaf refused to listen to these demands, and he gathered a fleet and prepared to invade the country. This he could now do without violating any agreement, since the treaty of peace concluded between him and King Harald in 1064 should remain in force only so long as the kings lived. Hostilities commenced, but the peace-loving Olaf began negotiations with King Sven, which resulted in a new treaty of peace between Norway and Denmark in 1068. This treaty should be binding for all times, and neither kingdom should claim supremacy over the other. King Magnus, who had been sickly for some time, died in 1069, and Olaf became king of all Norway. The Heimskringla describes him as follows. Olaf was a large man and well-built. It is a common opinion that no one has seen a man better looking or of nobler appearance. His yellow, silky hair fell in rich locks, He had fair skin, beautiful eyes, and well-proportioned limbs. He was generally reticent, and spoke little at the thing, but he was glad and talkative at the drinking feast. He drank much, and was cheerful and peace-loving to the end of his days. Because of his quiet disposition and peaceful reign, he was called Olaf Kyrre, the Quiet. His efforts to maintain peace at home and abroad had a most beneficent effect at this time not only because the kingdom needed to recover from the heavy losses incurred in the fruitless military exploits of his martial father, but also because the people's mind needed to be turned away from the strut and vainglory which usually attends war and adventure, to seek employment and honor in peaceful pursuits. Conditions in the neighboring kingdoms were also favorable to the maintenance of peace as both Denmark and Sweden were so occupied with internal strife or foreign conquests that they could not pursue any aggressive policy in their relations with Norway. Christianity had not been firmly established in Sweden, and many people were displeased because of King Stenkill's efforts to promote the missionary work. The violent reaction against the church which occurred when he died in 1067 was caused perhaps in part by the overzealous Bishop Egino of Skalna, Who had threatened to destroy the great heathen temple at Uppsala. Many people returned to their old faith and sacrificed to the heathen gods. Several rival candidates were also contending for the throne, and the country was torn by civil strife for many years, until Inge Stenkelson finally overpowered his rivals and succeeded his father on the throne. In Denmark, King Sven was engaged in preparing his great expeditions to England, which brought him only loss and disappointment. When he died in 1076, his son Harald became his successor, but he soon died and a younger brother, Canute, became king of Denmark. He was an ambitious and warlike young man who could not forget that his ancestors had occupied the throne of England. Not discouraged by his father's fruitless attempts at conquest, he determined to send a new expedition to England. He was a great friend of Olaf Kyrre and solicited his aid for the undertaking. Olaf refused to join the expedition, but as a good friend he placed sixty warships fully manned at his disposal. In 1084, Canute began to collect a large fleet, but time passed, and when the preparations finally were near completion, most of the Danish chieftains grew impatient and returned to their homes. Norway was thereby saved from renewed hostilities with England. King Canute, who thus suddenly found himself deserted, was very wroth. He began to rule harshly and collected unjust and excessive taxes. This produced a general rebellion, and he was killed by an angry mob in St. Albans Church in Odense, where he had sought refuge. In the reign of his successor, Olav Hunger, he was declared holy and he soon became the national saint of Denmark, though his only merit seems to have been that he was slain in a church. Olav Kira, who was pious as well as peaceful, was deeply interested in the labors of the clergy, and worked zealously throughout his long reign to give the Church of Norway a more stable and efficient organization. The defiant attitude which his father Harald Hordrada had assumed over against the Archbishop of Bremen he seems to have regarded as improper, if not unfortunate. His own disposition, as well as his friendly relations with Denmark, which was a part of the Archdiocese of Bremen, inclined him to favor the archbishop and to uphold his authority over the Norwegian clergy. He was also encouraged in his loyalty to the Roman See and its representative, the archbishop, by the pope himself, who in his letters to the king expressed a deep solicitude for the church in the north. The powerful Gregory Seventh, who occupied the papal throne at this time, 1073-1085, was the real founder of the papal power and the organizer of the Roman hierarchy. The constant strife between ruling princes, the violence and turmoil everywhere rampant, convinced him that the church alone possessed the wisdom and authority to maintain peace, and to act as arbiter in every controversy. He wished to reform the world by organizing a universal religious monarchy with the pope as supreme ruler. Human pride, he wrote, has created the power of kings. God's mercy has created the power of bishops. The pope is the master of the emperors. He is rendered holy by the merits of his predecessor, St. Peter. The Roman Church has never erred, and Holy Scripture proves that it can never err. To resist it is to resist God. The growing power of the hierarchy, and the increased devotion to the Roman Church, which was the result of Pope Gregory's activity, was fast ripening into the great religious movement which culminated in the Crusades, the impulse of which was felt in every land in Western Europe. Cathedrals were built, and crusading missionary work was carried on with zeal, while all nations were drawn closer to Rome, which was the center of religious and intellectual life. That Olav Kyrre was imbued with the spirit of the age is rendered evident by his labors to organize the Church of Norway according to the general plan of the Catholic Church in other countries, as well as by his efforts to introduce in Norway the culture and refinement of the aristocratic circles in England and continental Europe. His reign marks a final victory of medieval ideas, which found their best expression in crusades and knight-errantry. But the Roman incubus, which was so potent in controlling the governments and in shaping the intellectual life of the age, was far less marked in Norway than elsewhere in Europe. Celibacy of priests, which the Pope now enforced as a part of the Roman church discipline, was not introduced in Norway. The clergy remained subject to the king, who exercised firm control in ecclesiastical affairs. The skaldic poetry flourished, the national saga literature and history writing were yet to blossom forth, and there were but scant traces of a religious literature fostered under the influence of the Church. The separation of the North from the Archdiocese of Bremen gave the Norwegian people a new opportunity to preserve their independence in Church affairs and to develop a strong national spirit. The attempt of Pope Gregory VII to assert his supremacy over the German Emperor Precipitated the famous struggle between the Pope and Emperor Henry IV, which divided the whole empire into the warring factions of Welfs and Ghibellines, friends of the Pope and supporters of the Emperor. Archbishop Albert of Bremen was one of the emperor's staunchest supporters. His successor, Limar, also adhered to the Ghibelline party even after the Emperor had been excommunicated, and Pope Gregory VII punished the disobedient prelate by depriving him of his office. King Sven Estridsson of Denmark and his successors were adherents of the Pope, and this finally led to the separation of the Scandinavian countries from the Bremen Archdiocese, and the creation of a new archbishopric in the Danish city of Lund in Skåne in 1104. During this period of strife, which paralyzed the power of the Archbishop of Bremen, the highest ecclesiastical authority in Norway was exercised by the king. The state church principle, which had been practiced by St. Olaf, and which had been so imperiously maintained by Harald Hardrada, was now further strengthened by circumstances which made the king the natural leader of the Church of Norway. King Olaf Kyrre divided Norway into three bishoprics, Nidaros, Selya, and Oslo, each with its diocesan bishop, who received the rank of Jarl. New incumbents were chosen by the chapters of the diocese, but they had to present themselves before the king, who in reality selected the candidates. Each diocese had its own saint, Nidaros St. Olaf, Oslo St. Halvard, and Celia St. Suniva. In Trondheim, Olaf erected a cathedral church on the spot where St. Olaf was thought to have been buried the first time. It was dedicated to the Trinity, but was generally called the Christ Church. The altar was placed on the spot where St. Olaf's body was supposed to have rested, and the shrine of the saint was moved to the new church. On the foundations of this church, the Trondheim Cathedral was later erected. King Harald Hardrada's body, which had been brought back to Norway, was interred in St. Mary's Church, which he had built. On the west coast of Norway, Olaf Kyrre founded the city of Bergen, Old Norse Björkven, which, because of its favourable location, soon became one of the chief commercial towns in the north. The bishop of the diocese was to reside here, and the king began the erection of a large cathedral of stone, the Christ Church. This was finished in 1170, and the St. Seneva relics were then transferred from Celia to Bergen. In the Orkneys, Jarl Thorfinn founded a bishopric and built a cathedral church at Bergsall, 1050-1064. to 1064. In Iceland, Gysor Islefsson, who became bishop in 1081, erected a cathedral in his estate, Skalholt, which he donated to the church as a permanent bishop's residence. The long period of peace during the reign of Olaf Kera produced a marked improvement in economic conditions the cities grew, and commerce increased. No extra taxes were imposed for military purposes, and good harvests seemed to have added to the general prosperity. It is evident from the saga accounts that this reign was long remembered as a sort of golden age of peace and plenty. In the reign of Olaf Kira there were good harvests and such abundant good fortune that Norway had never been more prosperous under any king since the days of Harald Harfagre, says the saga. Under these circumstances, a taste for luxury and comfort was naturally developed, and the king labored earnestly to bring the civilization and culture of his people into full harmony with the Christian spirit, and to introduce in Norway the elegance and courtly manners which were being developed everywhere in Europe during this age of chivalry. The herd was doubled in number, so that it consisted of twenty herdmaind, sixty gester, and sixty huskerlar. The herdmaine were divided into groups at the head of which stood schooltilsfeiner, or officers of the king's guard. After the creation of this new office, the lendermen do not seem to have sought the king's herd as before, but they held now the highest rank in the country, as King Olaf did not appoint any jarls after the death of Hawken Iverson. The curtisfeiner, corresponding to the French pages, waited at the king's table, Behind each guest at the table stood a Curtis fine, with a burning candle. The people of the higher classes began to wear costumes of foreign pattern, borrowed especially from England and Normandy. The people began to dress with great splendor according to foreign fashions, says the saga. They wore fine hose ruffled about the knee. Some put gold rings about the legs. Many wore long mantles with slit sides tied with ribbons. And with sleeves five ells long and so narrow that they had to be pulled on with a cord and arranged in folds up to the shoulders. They wore high shoes, embroidered with silk and even ornamented with gold. From the upper classes, who were in sympathy with the spirit and higher culture of the age, the new tastes and ideas were soon communicated to the common people, who through a natural instinct for imitation, gradually adopted as much of the new customs as environment and circumstances would permit. King Olaf also introduced many improvements in the construction of dwelling houses. Hitherto the fireplace, Arn, was placed in the center of the house, and the smoke escaped through an opening in the roof, the lyori. Olaf built houses with stone floors and introduced the oven, which was erected in the corner of the room with a flue for carrying away the smoke. The lyori disappeared and the houses received a loft, the beginning of a second story. Windows became more common, though glass windows seem yet to have been limited to the king's own dwellings. From the earliest times, the Norsemen took great delight in social and religious festivities. Their great hospitality and the liberal entertainment of friends and travelers have already been mentioned as a conspicuous national trait. The period of prosperity and peace in the time of Olaf Kyrre gave new stimulus to the development of social life. Permanent clubs or guilds, Norse gilda, Old Norse gildi, organized under the protection of the church, were instituted by King Olaf to afford better opportunity for social intercourse. These guilds had their own guild halls, women were also members, the rules were strict, and much attention was paid to fine manners and good conversation. Christian spirit was also fostered in the guilds, as they were placed under the supervision of the church. The members were mutually pledged to assist one another in times of need, a very fortunate arrangement at a time when municipal government was yet in its infancy. Thereby, the guilds became the forerunners of political clubs, insurance companies, pension funds, and like organizations which have sprung from the feeling of social interdependence. The members were jointly responsible for each other's houses and stables. If a member suffered loss of house or stable by fire, the guild would rebuild it. If a man's granary burned, he received a certain amount of grain. If he lost three head of cattle or more, each member should give him a measure of grain. If the member was a merchant and lost his goods by shipwreck, he also received a compensation. If a member was imprisoned in a foreign land, he was ransomed by the guild. If he was slain by one who did not belong to the guild, the other members would assist in prosecuting the slayer. But if a member committed murder, he was expelled from the guild and was not again allowed to appear in the guild hall. When a member died, all the other members were present at the funeral. The guilds were generally named after patron saints under whose special protection they were supposed to stand in Bergen. They were especially numerous, and the names of many are still familiar in that city. The most important was the St Jotmans' St Edmunds Guild, to which, according to an old writer, Even kings, dukes, counts, barons, knights, and other noblemen belonged. In Trondheim, the oldest was the Mikle Guild, the Great Guild, organized by Olaf Kira and dedicated to Saint Olaf. Tunsberg had the Saint Olaf's Guild and the Saint Anna's Guild, Oslo, the Guild of the Holy Body, Saint Anna's Guild, and the Shoemaker's Guild. The country districts, too, had their guilds. They are mentioned as having existed in Sultan, Olen, Opdal, Medelen, and Herro, in Sundmar, and in many other places. That many guilds existed of which no records have been preserved can be seen from place names like Gildeskola, Gildehus, Gildevon, Gildevold, Gildesaker, etc. In course of time, when the cities became industrial centers, the guilds very naturally developed into craft guilds, in which men of the same profession or handicraft were associated together. But in Norway the guilds were controlled by the king and the church, and at no time did they become independent political organizations hostile to the ruler, something which happened not infrequently in some countries of Europe. Among the more prominent men in Norway in Olofkir's time may be mentioned especially Skule Foster, the king's chief advisor, a man of high rank who had followed him from England. He seems to have been the king's foster-father, not the son of Earl Tostig, as some sources have it. Skule was placed at the head of the herd, and he was also sent to England to bring back the body of King Harald Hordrada. The king gave him the old royal hall in Oslo, when a new royal dwelling was erected, and he granted him also a number of estates at Oslo, Konghela and Trondheim, and also Rhine in Nordmere, from which his descendants derived their name. From Skula Kongsvostra descended Duke Skula, Skula Jarl, famous in the reign of King Hakon Hock Hakonsson. Dag the father of Gregorius Dogson. In Viken, Sigurd Ullstrang in Trondelagin, the son of Rut Fagin, who fell at Stiklestad. Thor of Steig in Oplnene, who was the king's secret opponent, and Svanka Steinersson, who ruled the border districts on the Goethe River were among the most powerful men in the kingdom at this time. King Olaf Kyrre died in 1093, in the 27th year of his reign. End of chapter 50